We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 this morning, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, which is a very important passage. It is the institution of the office of deacon in the church. We need to understand with all the different models of church in our day and age, there are only two biblically recognized offices in the local church, and that is the elder, overseer, pastor, which is sort of all rolled into the same thing, different uh, aspects of a person spiritually leading the church, and then there is the office of deacon, those who meet the practical needs of the church, those who are spiritually qualified, for it is a spiritual work, but it is not a teaching work, it is a practical work, and the church needs both. And we're going to see from this passage this morning the ordering of those things, the qualification of these things and how the role of deacon brings unity and blessing to the church. If you would please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmens, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So what we see here in Acts chapter 6 is the continued growth of the church. Some people mistakenly, when they read some of the earlier passages about people going from house to house, think that the early church was just a small group of people. It wasn't. It was thousands and thousands of people. It quickly multiplied as word got out about the resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit moves amongst the people there in Jerusalem. And at this point, the administration of this group of people is way beyond the 12 apostles. And so there is a distribution of food to the widows and to the poor. And this is nothing new. Uh, This comes straight from the Old Testament. One of the common and constant aspects of good works amongst the Jews and then Christians now is the care for the poor and especially for widows and orphans. James, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, writes in his letter, just reminding you of a verse we read often, James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It has always been a part of Christianity that we care for widows, for orphans, and for the poor. It should and must be a part of what we are about as Christians. And so the Hellenists, those who were Greek-speaking Jews, had a complaint against the apostles, feeling like they were being neglected, their widows were being neglected in this distribution of food daily. 
And it appears to be a real problem because they don't rebuke them for complaining. They say, all right, we have a problem and we've got to figure out how to fix this problem. We've got to make sure that we are actually distributing what needs to be distributed to those who need it. And the answer is more distribution of labor, more people working, more hands at the table. And so for this real problem, the Lord brings to pass a delegation of labor, a shared duty. We first see this coming to the scriptures back with the Israelites when Moses brings this massive group of people, close to a million people out of Egypt. And he gets out there in the desert and his father-in-law comes to visit him in Exodus chapter 18 and he is trying to sit as the sole arbiter of all the problems and struggles of these people. And his father-in-law tells him what everybody else would tell him, hey Moses, you can't do this. You're going to wear yourself out. This is way too many people for one person to be trying to work through all these problems. You need to recruit trustworthy and able men and break down and delegate these duties so that the people are taken care of in a way they ought to be taken care of. Moses listens to the wise counsel of his father-in-law and breaks up his duties. And that is what we have here. We have a separation of duties between the apostle or the apostolic role, which becomes the elder role in the early church, as Paul goes around planting missionary churches throughout uh, Turkey and Greece. Each time they appoint elders and then they appoint deacons. These two divisions uh, are in every church that's planted in the book of Acts. The elders are there for the purpose of the ministry of God's word and of prayer. To minister God's word is to make it available, to put it before people in a way that they can understand it. Uh, many times people read the scriptures and it's not clear to them what is being said there. And it's a part of the role, the key and essential part of the elder role is to minister God's word to you so that it is available and it impacts your heart and you can understand who God is that you might live for him and worship him. And the role of continuously praying for and over the congregation, asking God to bless and be at work in the hearts of the people. As we're going to see, the role of deacon is the role of service in Jesus' name for the practical needs of the church and especially the mercy needs of the church. There are real needs that take time and energy and talent to meet in the church. And those needs should be met in a distinctly Christian way. And this division of labor is for the deacons. Well, there's two things I'd like to note about this as we go down this passage of seeing a division of labor in the church for the meeting of needs. And the first one may seem obvious, but it, it must not be because all the time in the American church, we don't see it. And that is the impossibility of single pastor leadership. I've said over and over as we've planted this church and gone on and on, I cannot imagine doing this myself. It would be it would be exactly what I'm getting ready to tell you. At the end of the pandemic, they started uh, polling pastors as to, hey, how are you faring after the pandemic? How, how'd you come through this whole thing? And poll after poll showed that almost 50% of pastors were on the verge of quitting their job and leaving because they were so stressed out and burnt out over trying to bear the weight of all these trials and struggles on their own shoulders. And surprise, surprise, they couldn't do it. Because the scriptures teach us 
about a plurality, which means many, more than one elder, and a plurality of deacons, more than one deacon. And that there should be many people, many spiritually qualified men in the elder role, and then many spiritually qualified people in the deacon role to serve the needs of the church. And any time one person tries to either control or bear all of that weight, it is a recipe for disaster in the church because it should not be one single person doing all of these things. And so instead of bearing all the weight upon yourself, looking at what we see in the scriptures is the answer because following that, there were all these conferences like go to a lakeside retreat to get yourself back together and then go back into the fight and the struggle. I'm telling you this morning as we read the scriptures, we don't need another series of retreats. What we need is to get back to biblical church governance. And if you take a burnt out person in a wrong structure and put them right back in there, they're going to be burnt out just the same again. We need to take the whole thing and look at it from scripture and go in a different direction. What the scriptures say that we ought to do. Because this church, as many of you know, was born out of that period of time as we came together with a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons and the shared the load and the struggle. And instead of it being burnout, it produced joy. Because the strange thing, and most of you that have been through struggle and hardship in life with other people, know that the people that you have the closest bonds with are those that you struggle with through hardship and you come out the other side together and you build a bond together through the struggle that you didn't have beforehand. And that's what happens when we struggle together for the things that the Lord has put before us instead of struggling against each other. It produces joy instead of burnout. Spiritual flourishing of the church through many people serving Christ together. That's note number one. The second note is what is brought out here that's very clear, which is the primacy of the ministry of God's word and prayer over physical service to the poor. It's very clear. It's stated twice. We are not going to give up the ministry of the scriptures to wait tables. And that sounds insulting, but it's true. Like there, We all have 24 hours in a day. And you can only do so much in the day. And what is being said here is that there are certain people that are called in the church primarily, and I'm going to get to this in a minute here, doesn't mean they don't serve, but primarily their role in the church is to labor in understanding these things and then minister these things to the spiritual body of the congregation. And that if they are out waiting tables and doing uh, practical works with 90% of their time, they will not have the time to prepare a message to be able to spiritually minister to the people. They have the same amount of time that you do. But there are other people in the congregation that are not called to this spiritual ministry primarily. I believe we are all called in one way or another to proclaim the gospel and to be a part of the missionary enterprise But there are others of you who are called to use your hands and your time to physically serve other people. And in doing so, you'll be doing exactly what God has called you to. So I want to talk with you a little bit about this. Because both are necessary, but there is a necessary order to the two. If you do not have spiritual discipline and spiritual preaching and teaching and ministry to the soul first, you will not have the outcome in practical service that you think that you will have. The priority here and the priority everywhere in the scriptures is soul first, body second. 
For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their own what? Soul. If you have gained the whole world through continuous effort to help the body of people and then their soul is lost in condemnation to hell, then nothing has really been gained. And so we got way off track with this in this country and then really affected the rest of the world. And I want to talk with you about it for a moment because it's important. We got this so wrong in a movement called the social gospel movement. Some of you may be familiar with this, but it is an intentional movement to reverse what we see here in Acts chapter 6, that there must be primacy on the preaching and teaching of Scripture and prayer, which then, through sanctification, leads into doing charitable works. But instead, saying this ministry of the Word and of prayer is useless. Instead, we're going to focus completely on the ministry of merciful, merciful works to people to recreate the world as we know it. This is the social gospel. It took root in the late 19th century in America, primarily through the writings of a man named Walter Rauschenbusch. He was the father of the social gospel. In 1886, he was the pastor of the Second German Baptist Church in a difficult neighbor, neighborhood in New York City called Hell's Kitchen, which that's not a great name for your neighborhood. It's a, it's a place of struggle, a place of poverty, um, a place where immigrants came into the country, experienced terrible poverty, uh, a lot of labor exploitation, government indifference, all things that are a problem and were a struggle. And his congregation was made up of mostly these people. And for 10 years, he ministered to these people and was very affected by their poverty and by their struggle and how to help these people. His conclusions were driven by his spiritual beliefs because Rauschenbusch was a... um, a uh, product, I guess you could say, of the period of time where people were very, very critical of everything uh, supernatural in the scriptures. And so he did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, didn't believe in the second coming of Christ, didn't believe in any of the miracles of the Bible, didn't believe that there was any such thing as the real forgiveness of guilt through the cross of Christ. For him, it was all an ethical system. To be a Christian meant to be a good person. And so him trying to apply that system of what it means to be a good person to all of this poverty and struggle caused him to write a book in 1896 called Christianity and the Social Crisis. It was an attempt to apply Christian principles to social change. And he styled himself and became known as a Christian socialist. And his practice and his pressing was to take the principles of Christianity and reorient the material things of this world so that there was equal distribution of goods, that there was greater justice in the court, there were social changes, and it became the root of many social changes in America, many of which were good in and of themselves. But the problem with Rauschenbusch is his understanding of the kingdom of God didn't match up with what Jesus says the kingdom of God is. Jesus said when he was questioned directly, who are you? What is your kingdom? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. That there is something that Jesus was doing that was spiritual primarily in its nature. People always wanted Jesus to become a political ruler, to set up a kingdom right here, right now, to deliver the people from the Romans, to take control of things, but it was never what Jesus was about. But for Rauschenbusch, 
There was the coming, he believed, there was the coming of a possible utopia on earth through the increase of human potential strengthened by God's spirit. It was a weird fusion of of evolution and socialism and Christianity that if we're all evolving forward to this place and we strive hard enough in these practical works towards the poor that we'll be able to overcome our sinfulness and we'll basically bring heaven to earth. And this was his This was his vision, and it sounded great to people because it didn't involve repentance of sin, and it didn't involve anything that Jesus talks about with the gospel that is uncomfortable. It was charitable good works elevated to the highest end of Christianity. The gospel and the church were reduced to only deacon service. The spiritual eldership role was reduced to nothing, to a place of meaninglessness in the modern liberal Protestant church. And we see this everywhere today. When you go into a modern liberal Protestant church that is affected by this from 100 years ago, you see almost no ministry of the scriptures. You can go into a church and find almost nothing said about the scriptures, almost nothing said about the biblical gospel, and yet there's much pressing for merciful good works, and that is the outworking of these things. And I want you to understand this morning that the apostles were right to say we must keep the order of soul first, body second. We must minister to the soul above all things. And it is true heart change in the soul through repentance and through faith and through regeneration and through sanctification that we then go and do merciful works because we have been changed in Jesus. Because you see, the great difference is that people that don't understand the gospel go out to serve the poor and the needy thinking that they will earn a place of favor before God because of their merciful works. And it does not work that way. It will not change the soul. There is an ordered priority to our actions in the church. We minister God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Personal conversion comes to us. We repent of our sins, put our faith in Jesus Christ, and then because of our changed heart, it overflows in actions of service and love and kindness to others, and this is a part of our sanctification. Only by personal conversion will there be true societal change. All that Rauschenbusch sought through his socialistic uh, fusion with Christianity didn't work. We still have the same struggles that we have back then. It did not produce the revival that he hoped that it would. Well, let's look back at our our scripture here in Acts chapter 6. Because after speaking to some of these things, recognizing the problem, recognizing the real need, speaking to the priority of soul over body, they get to how are we going to fix this problem? Because we do need to minister to these poor. These widows should not be neglected, so how are we going to meet the need? Well, in verse 3, it speaks to qualifications. They don't just ask for who is the best organizer and who is the hardest worker. They start with spiritual qualifications. And I want to remind you, as we said some weeks ago, you can never accomplish the work of the Lord without the spirit of the Lord. When we charge out to go do what we think is God's work and we don't ask for or seek the blessing of the Lord and are not praying and seeking for the filling of the Holy Spirit, whatever we accomplish, it will be our own work and it will not be the work of the Lord. And so even in this practical deacon service, the first qualification is someone who is filled with the Spirit. 
someone that is of good reputation, someone who is wise, someone who has a spirit of service, because they tell them, whoever we appoint here, they're going to be assigned to fix this problem. And so they have to be a person of spiritual service. I'd like you to keep your finger here and turn over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul expands this list of qualifications because as he goes about with others planting new churches, they are constantly instituting these roles of elder and deacon. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, Paul expands the list of spiritual qualifications for those who might serve as a deacon in the church. And he is also re-emphasizing this role. So let's look down this list. And as we look down this list, what I want you to think about is, am I qualified for this? Because the application of all these things is going to be me calling you to enter into service of the church and to say, yes, I want to serve the Lord in his church. But to serve the Lord in his church doesn't just mean you have a want to and you raise your hand. You have to qualify for these things by striving primarily after godliness, which goes back to what I said before. The primary thing is the spiritual change of the heart, which then leads to the ability to do the works of the Lord in mercy ministry. So it says here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. So to be dignified is a person who has character that wins respect, or they have the high opinion of others. A person that is well thought of. Back to Acts, it says a person of good reputation. This is a dignified person. A person that is not double-tongued or speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Someone who speaks one way then speaks another. A person that is inconsistent in their heart and inconsistent in their language. A deacon must not be addicted to much wine or addicted to alcohol. And in the broader context of our day, not addicted to drugs in general. They cannot be a person mastered by their sins. A person that is walking in spiritual maturity will continue to struggle with sin. All of us will struggle with sin until we enter into the kingdom of God. However, we must not be mastered by these things. And I want you to know that in Christ Jesus, you can enter into a place in your life where you are not mastered by sin. And so in spiritual maturity, we are seeking this. So a person of spiritual maturity, not addicted to much wine, Not greedy for dishonest gain. Not a person that's going to be tempted to use their position for their own benefit instead of for the benefit of those that they are serving. A person who believes with a clear conscience. To have a clear conscience before the Lord is to not have anything hidden that's going to be, that's going to jump out. Something that people should know about, but for whatever reason you've been unwilling to disclose to people and you're hiding it. And if you go and serve the Lord in a position like this and it becomes known, it brings shame on the church. You should instead just get it out there. Confess it, get it out there, be done with it. Let it be forgiven and put behind you so that you can serve the Lord with a clear conscience. Trust, uh, I'm sorry, tested. 
Tested, meaning that they're not a new believer. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Sometimes when people initially come to Christ and we see a lot of practical talents in their life, we're tempted to just push them right to the front and put them right into a place of service. The scriptures warn us against that and tell us to have them wait that they might be tried, they might grow and strengthen over time so that when they're put in that place of leadership, they are ready to do so and can endure in their leadership. It says, let them be uh, a husband of one wife, the husband of one wife. Now, this is interpreted in various ways. Let me tell you how we interpret this here. Um, first of all, basically, it's, they're not polygamous. So you would think, well, why do you even need to say that now? In the out-of-control um, sexual ethic nature of our, of our country now, that polyamory is coming back if you weren't aware of that. And so just making sure that you understand that. And then it also, uh, in our understanding, what it means is that a person must not have been divorced since they have become a Christian. And when you pair that together with no new Christian entering into this role of service, it means a person that has been married faithfully to the same person since they came to Christ some long time ago. Now you say, well, how do you come up with that? Well, the other would be to hold a non-Christian person to a Christian standard of living. And how can we do that? How can we blame a person who was not a Christian living in a non-Christian way? And so there are various ways that other churches interpret this, but this is what we understand this to mean. That the person has been a Christian for a long time, and since they have become a Christian, they have demonstrated these characteristics of faithfulness. Let's see. Manages their household well. I have come to realize that is, the, that is just the catch-all, uh, amazing uh, qualification. Because what it is, is it says, hey, your household is a microcosm of management. And if your household's a disaster and everything's off the hook, don't try to come into a situation that's 10 times as large and think that you're going to be able to succeed. And so focus first on your home. And when things are well and in order in home, then a person may be qualified to serve in one of these positions. A wonderful catch-all qualification. Well, another interesting part of this that Paul brings in, which is very important, is qualifications for the wife. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, let's see here, uh, 11. Uh, their wives likewise. Now, what, what, what is this here? You're serving as a team, folks. If you don't realize this, those of you that are married, as you come into spiritual service, significant spiritual service, you are serving together. Uh, my dear wife, Maria, she is a fantastic pastor's wife, but she kind of got pulled into this thing with me because she has, to, she has to listen to me preach every week, and there's no class or school you can go to to learn how to be the pastor's wife. You just dive in and do it, and I'm so thankful for her and all of the spiritual service that she brings, and every one of our deacon's wives also brings spiritual service to the church because they bring particular and special acts of service and ways of relating to to the congregation, especially to the women of the congregation, that the men just cannot bring. There are differences of talents and abilities that complement together, not only in marriage, but complement together in service to the church. And so the wives uh, of a deacon must be dignified, again, a person of character, of respect, a person that's not a slanderer, not a gossiper, 
a person that is sober-minded, serious in her godliness, and faithful, someone that is worthy of trust, someone that is loyal. And every church that has a, a, a group of deacons and their godly wives that serve with them are tremendously blessed by these teams of people that serve to meet the physical and merciful needs of the church. So let me ask, why all of these qualifications for service of mercy to the poor? They were going to go and set up a series of tables and wait tables, like serve food in a, in a soup kitchen type of a way. What, what job in the world has a qualification list this long to go serve soup to someone? Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's such a big deal because our service in this way is service in Jesus' name and for his sake. When we go out from this place as wearing the Redeemer Bible shirt church and you are a shirt and you are a deacon or a wife of a deacon in this church and you go out into the world to serve in Jesus' name and you do not you are not dignified, you're a gossiper, you're a double-tongued uh, drug addict, and you're greedy, and uh, your household's a disaster, and you say, yes, I, I represent Jesus in these things. It does not bring honor to the church or to Jesus Christ. And so it is necessary that when we enter into these roles of service that the, we do so with these qualifications, not in perfection, because not a single one of us here are perfect. And these are scary, this is a scary list of qualifications. But they are things that we can achieve by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to reach a level of godliness where our service is authentic, true, brings glory to the Lord Jesus, and blesses the church in a non-hypocritical way. And that's really, really important. That's why the qualifications are here. We follow Jesus' humble example, and we must live and walk in his ways. So uh, I'm going to give a, just a, I told him I would do this. I'm going to give you like a warning. So those of you that need to go get kids for our child dedication, feel free to get up and go get your kids and bring them back because I'm winding down here. John chapter 13. John chapter 13, I'm going to read a little verse here for us uh, and Jesus as he speaks about service. Because when we speak about service of mercy ministry in Jesus' name, Jesus set the example for us. John chapter 13 is such a beautiful chapter. It speaks to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And at the end of this washing of his feet where Peter is just horrified, how are you going to get down and wash my dirty feet? And Jesus says, if you don't let me serve you, you have no part of me. Because he's setting an example and teaching them something. In John 13, 14, he says this, If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus was saying very clearly to them, I am setting you an example of physical, lowly service. I am not an exalted papal figure that you're going to come and kiss my foot and serve me, but I am going to serve you. And as Christians, we ought to all be lowly enough in heart to serve each other in any real physical way that is necessary. 
but our deacons are leading us in this merciful service. They are setting an example for us. They are identifying opportunities and they are calling us to join them in those opportunities that we might serve each other and the world in the name of Jesus Christ. It is humble service recognized by all. The apostles at the end of our passage here bring them down and pray over them and recognize their godliness and send them out to this task. Later on, the Lord Jesus recognizes Stephen for his incredible godliness and service through this vision of heaven, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Amazing. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we just read, that passage of qualification ends with this. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It is a serving, it's a place of service that is low and dirty, but it is a place of honor because it is the same place that Jesus took. The low place of humble service towards those who are in need. May the Lord strengthen and bless our deacons and, our, and their wives. I want to read their names this morning because they don't often get recognized. David Libin and Carol, Dwayne Reynolds and Christine, David Morgan and Sherry, Jeff Donovan and Bev, Andrew Mines and Julie, Ernie Booth and Joanne and our dear brother Paul Carroll. I'm thankful for them. The, so much of what happens in this place in the meeting of needs come from the direct actions and coordination of these men and their wives as they serve the church and they should be honored for these things. As we close, I say this. The direct application of this is that as they lead in acts of spiritual service, we need to come along with them. When they say, I need help with something, we need to not walk by. When Paul is down here struggling with the hoses, trying to get this baptismal uh, drained out, please don't walk right by him. Uh, help him. Uh, help him wind the hoses up, dump the water out. Join with these men and their wives in their spiritual acts of service. And then I want to challenge you. They will serve for a period of time and then they will roll off of their period of service. And as the church grows, we add more deacons because as there's more need, there's more servants that need to come to the table. But we will only call forward from the congregation those who are qualified for this service. So make it an aspiration of your spiritual life to be qualified for such spiritual service. If you look at this list and say, man, I don't, I'm not qualified for that, then make it a matter of prayer. Ask God to strengthen you, to draw you closer to himself that you might be spiritually qualified for this, that you might enter into something that you were called to do and know that you can do it with a clean conscience and a clear heart. May the Lord Jesus raise up leaders in his church that there would be no lack and that his name would be glorified. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. I thank you so much for this church and for every person here. I thank you for the way that you have been at work by your spirit in our midst and the way that you continue to work through the ministry of the word and through prayer and through acts of merciful service. Lord, I pray specifically related to this context this morning that there would be no need unmet in this congregation, that we would gather around each other and that we would be willing to express needs and then have needs met and that we would feel the love of Christ and that these needs being met by those who are spiritual, that it would bring glory to Christ Jesus instead of a, a call of hypocrisy. 
Lord, we thank you for the strength that you have brought by your spirit into this church, that instead of burnout, there is thriving. Instead of mockery, there is glory to Jesus. And we pray that you would be with us, that you would guard us, watch over us, supply every need, raise up your people in sanctification, that we might be known for great works of mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.